0: Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast number 31. On this episode, I'm joined with Trent Hummel of Western Equipment Dealers Association's Dealer Institute. On this episode, Trent talks about the market, what he sees happening, and where he sees 2018 starting and ending. Trent, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Casey.
0: Good. So Trent, um, when I get started here, I always like to get people's background and where they started at and where they come from and, and all the all the stuff in between there so give me a little background on on trent hummel and-
1: well i come from a long line of whole goods managers uh, my family started a case h or an ih dealership in 1923 and i've been groomed for that role that's all i know is used whole goods uh it's in a big grain area big dry land farming so we've never actually participated in the small inventory that much although we had a Kubota dealership uh but it was a, a minor minor unit sales Uh 2001, there was seven family members working in this dealership. So my cousin and I branched off and went and bought a New Holland store. Which, at the time, we thought, uh, case a New Holland would come together under a CNH line, and every town would have an Agco, a JD, and a CNH dealer. But uh, obviously, that didn't happen. This uh, New Holland dealership that we bought in 2001 was—we were told it was a turnkey operation. Everything was perfect, and we got in there, and it was a wreck, uh, doing four million dollars worth of business. Uh, we lost ninety percent of our staff in the first eighteen months, which was a blessing in disguise because we needed to get our own team involved or get our own team hired that would take us to the promised land. And in probably three or four years, we were up to twenty million dollars, and we had high market shares. And we never run, we never had anything have a birthday, and turned our inventory. Double digits, our used inventory, market share and combines was 35 or 40%. Uh, 4-wheel drives is 20%, which in New Holland's world is very, very high. And uh, we cashed out of those locations. The case location we cashed out in 2008 to Rocky Mountain Equipment Dealerships, and the New Holland Dealership we cashed out in 2010 to Rocky Mountain. And I've been consulting uh... since that time working with other dealers on improving their leadership and their operational best practices and financial understanding with a huge emphasis on used iron i wrote a course on iron management called iron management and it's been uh... sold seven or eight or nine times by the western equipment dealers association their training division is the dealer institute which is where i subcontract under as a trainer for them and and present the material that i'm asked to present and right now i'm currently working at a little Little complex, a little two-store complex, quota store, and uh, we're having some big successes in this ourselves right now. Yeah.
0: Well, I've listened to quite a bit of your stuff um, over the years, um, whether it's stuff I've read or or little snippets I've listened to, and also listened to you in person as well. Um, so I'm I'm uh, pretty familiar with what you have to say, and, and I and I actually agree with quite a bit of it. So earlier we were talking. You just got back from a from a farm show that you were at. Give me a little background on on what that farm show what you saw at the farm show and and if you talk to some dealers and customers alike and, and what what's kind of the feel of the uh of the marketplace heading in towards the end of the year
1: well where i live in western canada this november farm show is pretty much uh you can get the pulse of the whole year based on this show because our season is over we've got four or five inches of snow on the ground and it's done so we're we're froze up now till spring but uh and it's the second third or second largest farm show in canada so it Draws a huge array of people, and all the manufacturers are there. You know, I'm talking with customers, I'm trying to find out what's going on. The dealers are telling me that they're doing for every hundred quotes, they're only getting about 25 to 30 sales. And this has been going on for 75 or 90 days. They've been quoting like crazy on big iron and just not getting anybody to bite or close on it. And I I don't know what's going on. I don't know why that is. Uh, when we went through 1999, I can remember doing 30 quotes and only getting one or two hits. So that's how bad that market was. It was much similar to 2015 and 16. You just quoted until somebody bought something. So the dealers are—they say there's so much action that, that they can't figure out why it isn't busting loose. So I, I gathered up a bunch of customers that I've done a ton of business with, and these are business-like customers, and got a good feel of the market and what's going on, and. And most of them said they don't know why they're not why they're sitting on their hands. they can't figure it out. they're moving grain, they're selling grain, they're getting checks. uh it, nothing is froze up in the ports. everything is going good. uh The one thing that the one or two gentlemen had said is this bloody age of information makes you so nervous that you sit on your hands because there's so much data presented to a person every day every minute you can click on and see a a storm in china or a big wreck in europe and then it's they always tell you it's going to affect your prices this way or that way and so all this uncertainty this too much data is creating uncertainty in the farmer and then he sits on his hands and doesn't do anything so i wonder if that's not a problem that we're given too much information or that's too easy of access to information but uh, the best time in the world is to sell big iron in the winter months because nobody's complaining about the weather it's always a next year crop for us so I don't know why they're not buying, but they're, and they're not saying why they're not buying. The cash flow is there; it's good. They're ready to trade because they haven't done anything for two or three years, so they know it's time. And uh, the good buys seem to be all gone at auction. The uh, auction prices are coming up to some degree, so that's not a place to go. A lot of people don't want to buy at auction because they have that great big trade they got to get rid of, and they don't want to take it the to auction themselves. So they'd rather do the dealer thing. I'm not sure why. There's
0: lots going on. i would echo a lot of that. When I look at the customers that we're dealing with here, we have a lot of guys doing Now, we're, We've got a lot of corn left in the field yet that we got to get out. Um, so we're running kind of like everybody. It seems like we're running just a little bit behind schedule when when you look at our harvest schedule. But for the most part, we really don't have that much inventory for where we're at. But what we what we don't have is all the inventories to. Uh, basically fill out the washout cycle so we have some some pretty big holes in our inventory where we're trying to generate you know either upstream or downstream machinery to get to the the inventories that we have so we can generate that washout cycle so that's where a lot of our our inventory issues are coming from right now is not necessarily too much inventory but a lack of the right inventory to fill the holes to to move through the washout cycle
1: and and i'm guessing that you're having a hard time getting the right inventories because some of these guys, these customers, are getting sticker shock at what they have to pay, difference from what they had to pay three or four years ago. Yep. We were given machinery away, machinery away. Then we're not doing it now. Well, now we have got to buy the used proper, and we are understanding the value of it, the wholesale value. And 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 they're just walking away from deals. I guess part of that because it's just they're just not ready to pay that much money. And I I did that to a guy once in '99 or 2000 when things were a wreck. I. I said, well, maybe your farm, sir, is now a used buyer. You sh- you bought two new combines every year for the last 40 years, and now you're a used buyer. Well, that was the worst thing to say to him as a young guy. I shouldn't have never said that to him, but he did buy used machines from somebody else, not from us. But he realized that his 2,000-acre farm was not big enough to buy two new combines. It was big enough to buy two used combines.
0: Yep. And I, I think that's what we're seeing, too. A lot of the machinery that we actually need to fill those holes with, in a lot of situations are, are the machinery where guys have that stuff paid for. So they're looking at from a cash flow perspective and how that affects their cash flow to uh, reintroduce the payment back into their operation. We're also fighting, you know, a lot of bankers as well on this that we're, that we're fighting as well because a lot of bankers are saying to the guys, hey, you know what, you don't need anything right now. Keep, you know, keep on keeping on and with what you're doing. And when this thing rebounds, let's go back and look at some some inventory, uh, updating some of your inventories on your farm. Um, probably even a a bigger scenario though for us where i see a lot of our conversation that we're coming through uh our customers when we have that oh they God. have kind of duct tape and baling wired their machines together for the past couple of years just keeping them going and trying to watch their cash flow you know as much as they can and taking that gamble on on downtime and stuff during harvest and we're seeing a lot of guys that are going to be faced with some larger reconditioning bills that are looking at do i make that jump and and go get that piece of equipment or do i make the uh reconditioning bill um payment so one of the two things right there is kind of driving that are, are you seeing similar situations with the guys you talk to where they're the reconditioning costs are, are driving sales or do you see it just kind of as a as a wide gambit across the, all, all no I,
1: i'm hearing that? from service managers all about uh, these reconditioning jobs coming in that they haven't seen for two years on a combine and now it's forty thousand bucks <clears throat> and these guys are they're shocked at that, but well, you haven't traded, now should I trade? Well, then they see a difference of $130,000 just to trade up a couple of years, and they're, they can't figure out what's gone on. Where did the money go up so much? And then you present to them that the land values, what have your land values done in the last three or four years? And they've done nothing but go up and up and up. That's the other thing that I'm hearing from the banks. They're willing to give out the money on the machines, but they're coaching guys that land values are not going down. So you. if you're intending to buy land anytime soon, you better keep some cash available because land values haven't changed. In my market, they haven't moved at all. If anything, they've gone up. Even in the worst years, they went up. There's just too many people hungry for land, and too many guys, non-agriculture guys, sticking their nose into buying agriculture land because they don't make more of it. So it's a good investment that way.
0: So I'm going to show a little bit of my uh, lack of my knowledge of the Canadian market, but is there a, uh, like down in the States, we have a lot of cash rents on ground. Is it a similar situation up there where, where you have yeah. guys that are doing the same thing?
1: There's lots of cash rent going on here. Yeah, lots and lots of it, yeah.
0: How is that driving your marketplace?
1: Well, you get, with this cash rent, you get a guy that, you know, he buys a big combine, and he can knock off 2,000 acres with that combine. He can rent another 500 acres, no problem. He doesn't have to machine up because he's already got the machine to do it. It's only another two days' worth of work, whether you're on the spring side, the seeding side of it, or the harvest side of it. It's two more days of work. He can add another 500 acres on top of that and only add two more days of work. So, these machines are getting so big, and we're just not going to have to have as many of them out there to take our crop off until we get the varieties of grain that start pumping out double the bushels that we're pumping out now. and we don't have that. the machine the size of the machine is outpaced the size of what uh, the size of the bushels we're taking off our per acre. and I don't know how to say that properly, but that's what's going on here and you know three years ago they said the world would be short of food in 2050 because we'd have nine million people on population and we've got a surplus right now and you hear it all over the world everybody's having these big bumper crops and and uh there's plenty of food and people are taking their prices right now because they think it's going to drop in 2018 and that'll bring 2018 to a uh, to an average year, it won't be any stellar year. It'll be just an average year, I think, is what's going to happen next year.
0: So that's kind of a good segue into into what you see happening, and then we'll you know we'll bounce into uh, into leasing as well into this mix. But look at 2018, kind of going through the year. I, I foresee from my my seat on the bus where I'm sitting at that there's not going to be a lot of change in 2018 as far as uh, overall capacity of the marketplace. I mean, there's still going to be. Um, guys buying and selling equipment that's that's always going to happen but there's i don't foresee that there's anything on the horizon that shows that crop prices are going to do anything different and that on-farm income is going to be really much different than what you see now so you're looking at a lot of producers that have had two three four years of stagnant growth um at best and how that's affecting their balance sheet so look at 2018 and and tell me what you see as you know what your crystal ball showing you
1: well, it's uh, 2018 is going to be, I, I agree, it's going to be flat, just like 2017. And uh, all these guys that are quoting right now, and these dealers are telling me they're not getting any hits, they're not getting the percentage of hits they should, uh, that'll spill over, and they'll get some of those hits in the springtime of 2018. Guys will just sit on their hands until finally it's a month before seeding, and they better buy that tractor or whatever they're looking for, the high-clearance sprayer, whatever they're buying. So they'll they'll do that and they'll see what's at auction and the auction prices have come up so it won't be as good a buy as it what it was but they'll 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 trigger it now the big question always is I've seen the first half of a year people get all drunk and it's it's really good and going strong but it's always the second half of the year that defines a year it's not the first half the first half people they just want to get out of the house in March and April and buy something it seems like and so if if you can carry on july and august and september october as you did in march and april and and june you've got the world by the tail but uh... that's a million dollar question is what's going to happen in the second half of two thousand eighteen there can be weather issues somewhere in the world and disaster here and disaster there but i think we'll start off average in two thousand eighteen and i have no idea where two thousand the finish will end up in two thousand eighteen but the other thing that this is really coming to light now. And and I know all these manufacturers are chasing for, they're not even chasing market share as much as they just need more unit sales. They need more, they need more units going down the assembly line to justify the expense of that factory. And they're not getting them. And the industry in North America doesn't need that many units. And they can't figure it out. How come you needed that many 10 years ago, 20 years ago? Well, you don't need that many now because they're bigger machines and we farm a little different and we just don't need that much stuff. So, I, I hate to tell manufacturers this, but some of you guys are going to stop being in the business of four-wheel drive or stop being in the business of high-clearance sprayers or in the stop business of combines. You're just—we just We just don't need that many uh, manufacturers, and we don't need that many units produced to take a crop off, to make a crop in North America. And I know these guys are building this stuff for the whole world, and I only look at the North American market, and I don't follow what goes on overseas. But... Uh, they just—I know that's a real kick in the teeth for them, but sorry, I—I I know your market share is low and your unit count, sales are low, and probably you could just discontinue that line and not even offer that in your your brand.
0: When I look at the used marketplace of the equipment that's out there, the twelve, thirteen, fourteen model stuff that's there seems to be—you know—one gets sold out of the out of the population, two come back in. It feels like um, that—it feels like that number's just not going away. Um, so there's going to be a that's going to be there for a while i think that segmentation is going to stay there for a while but that being said 15 16 17 model stuff that's coming in um i see that there's going to be a premium there but you also have to f- to take in consideration that you're looking at some $300,000 stuff and you know compare that to the price of new and, and all the different things that go into that and finding that customer base to, to do all that has becoming becoming a lot um, more challenging than in the past that's where I feel like the leasing end of the business ha- has become a bigger spectrum than it's been in the past. And look for your opinion on this. But my my feel for the leasing part of it is that it's going to be here for a while and it's going to stick around for a while. Um, I, and I think even as leasing rates become, you know, higher and higher than, than they've been as far as payments go, um, I still think the leasing end of the business is going to be a, a lot stronger than what maybe some people think. What's your opinion on that?
1: Well, I, I kind of go the other way then. This leasing is strong now. Um, I can see where if we want people to stop leasing, just like if we want people to stop doing one-year-old rolls on high-clearance sprayers, all we got to do is ask the money that doesn't work for them. Mm-hmm. So if we want to stop leasing, we just have to ask a high price, a high lease price, an annual price or semi-annual, whatever your payment is, and you'll chase them into a purchase or you'll just chase them away, period. Uh, and I remember in 2000, 2001, 2002, when GM announced no more leasing, and Ford announced it the very next day no more leasing because they were just getting stockpiled with all this product, or all these lease return trucks and cars that they didn't know where to go to, and the market couldn't absorb them. Our manufacturers are experiencing that right now. They don't know what to do, and I'm hearing whispers from manufacturers all the time that the residual values are either going to be dumped on back onto the dealer so they can take the risk instead of the manufacturer, or the residual value that the manufacturer sets is going to be way, way low, so they're going to be really safe on this stuff. Well, either way, that's going to raise the price of the leasing price, and some guys are still going to lease and pay that big money, but some guys are going to say, well, for that money, I can just buy the bloody thing and have that asset in my yard. Why would I put out that much money? So, I I don't, I I think we can end it as fast as we started it. It just depends what our appetite is. Uh, It's no different than one-year-old combine rolls. I'm you know, I see these combines now that used to be three, three trades under each new one, and now it's four and four and a half trades. And the high clearance sprayers. They just the market's so saturated with used ones, and we don't need any more new or used in the market at all. I can remember three years ago when John Deere announced that there was two and a half years worth of used inventory on the ground in North America, and I went home and did my math and had it figured out to just about the same. I had three years figured out. I mean, they're not, they're not crazy they know exactly what goes on but they still have to keep those plants going so they have to figure out ways to make us sell this stuff but uh we're still driving our own boat here we run our own dealerships and if we're not comfortable buying that used and we don't want to put a residual value on it for so much money we'll put a lower one on and the guy has to pay more money and uh in 99 when we went from quoting guys, and you guys will think this is crazy, we used to trade guys at $20,000 a year for a combine, and then 99 come along, and we had to trade them for 40, and I had guys walk through the door saying, you're dumb in the head, 40 grand, nobody's ever going to pay that to trade a one-year-old combine. And they went all over town, and they shopped every stinking store, and every store said forty, forty five thousand dollars 45000 to trade a one-year-old combine, and they come right back to the, to our store and said, well, I guess 40 isn't wrong, but I'm just not paying that much. So I'm not buying this year. And we said that's that's okay, that's your choice, but this is the money we need to have. So.
0: We were talking just a little bit before we started recording here, but you know, it's it's funny how we, we repeat history over and over again because that same conversation was I had two, three years ago, um, when we were going from you know, fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year to trade a combine to a hundred to a hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year to trade a combine. And, you know, stuff doubled or, you know, increased by 75 percent or or whatever it was but i feel like we're at the we've hit a bottom and we're we're kind of looking up now instead of looking down and guessing what things were going to happen um so auction values in my opinion have have kind of stabilized there's still some soft bottoms out there and a lot of different products but you don't you're not shocked by anything anymore that at least what i see anyway i'm not terribly shocked anymore by by the outcomes that i see
1: so what you're talking about is exactly what 2001 and 2002 were like when we come out of 99 out of that wreck. Uh, just so everybody knows that 99, uh, within a 14-month period, everything in your yard, everything used, uh, dropped in value by 33% in a 14-month period. And it started with uh, combines, and then it spilled over to four-wheel drives, and then hay equipment. And the guys that are in the south tell me, no, no, it didn't start with combines. It started with cotton pickers and SP choppers which is not a big, wasn't a big item in my market at that time, so I didn't know anything about that. But uh, this is what's happened here. It, it To a T, we went, and I don't know why bubbles. Bubbles always burst, housing bubbles, everything bursts, and it seems like it's a 30% correction. I see it all the time in different industries. 30% loss of restaurants and grocery stores and all that kind of stuff when we have corrections in that. But... Um, I, I, I'm watching the charts and the graphs, too. In 2001, 2002, when we started to climb out of that mess, is exactly what we're looking at in 17, 18. So this this industry is like a heartbeat. You know, it, it gradually builds up, builds up, builds up slow, and then all of a sudden we get to that peak like we were at in 2012, 13, 14. And if you're watching the graph, you should have said something is going to blow up here. Something's going to blow up here. But you're right, they, they get to the edge of the cliff and they didn't know. But if you would have watched history, you could have said something was going wrong here. It's too fast, too much. We need to start cleaning out our used inventory, making sure we know what we're doing. You know, that's the other thing, Casey, is I'm looking on lots of dealers. Lots A lot of dealers have done some very, very good moves in the last two or three years, even though it was a lot of hurt on their financial statement. Uh, they've cleaned up their used inventory. They've done a good job. They're in a good position. They're coming out of this empty ready to go, can take some trades, can deal at the money they have to deal at. they're not desperate on getting rid of this piece or that piece because they have to and they take another stupid trade underneath that. And then I've got a whole group of dealers that just sat through it and they wrote it out and said, oh, well, it'll come back. Well, no, this stuff's got two and three years' birthdays on uh, on their yard. And they took it as a one-year-old, now it's a four-year-old. and they're still hoping to get one-year-old money for it, and they can't get it. And, of course, it's been a little dog-eared because it's standing on a dealer's lot and not been to the field, and guys, all the customers know what's on a guy's lot. Uh, it, you can say that they don't know what you have in inventory. They know what you have in inventory. They watch it as close as you do, especially on the pieces they're looking at. And if they see something down there three years, they don't come in and buy it. They don't get excited. They come in and offer you stupid low money and $100,000 under what you even want on your cost. So... Uh, there's some dealers that are in good shape, some dealers are in bad shape. I still think we're looking for a correction on some dealers that are just going to dry up and go away. We just don't need this many dealers out here to service the industry.
0: So. Yeah, I mean, number of farmers are dropping, so obviously the number of dealerships are going to drop as well. So it's how you have yourself positioned in, in the marketplace and in the different aspects of the business that you that you offer to your customer base will always, you know, those, those dealers are always going to win out. So, um, Trent, now we're looking out here, going into 2018 what are the top three things as a as a used equipment guy like myself what are the top three things I should be paying attention to and 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 what should I kind of be gearing my business towards
1: I always look for the the, there's a direct correlation and you'll see it lots of people show this graph farm gate receipts you want to see when they sell their crop coming off this fall what is what are their farm gate receipts what are they uh, are they up or down and compared to the last few years, how much money are they making? I also like to get a pulse on the banks what what are the banks feeling on lending money in the ag industry 'cause they they really study the markets a lot better than we do, so we can follow their trends and then of course, just keep your eye on your own inventory. what's it doing is it is it healthy for what my market is? Can I move this much stuff? Just don't take too much stuff and don't get caught into. These pre-sale programs are coming out, and the pre-order the, for next spring are coming out, and the manufacturers are all begging you to take more orders. You've got to plan your inventory for you, not for anybody else. It's, it's, their inventory is their problem. Don't make their problem your problem. And That's a hard thing to say, but don't – and I know we do a few favors for our manufacturer because they work us out of some problems, so we do it, but I don't need to take 30 extra combines because the manufacturer has them laying there and doesn't know what to do with them. I, I can't make that problem my problem those are the three things i watch well
0: trent i think we've covered the the gambit here and i and i feel like we've got some good information here do you have any last comments before we close it down
1: no i i have said it before said a lot of times the best thing in this business is it's always the next year country we're in the next year business so sell hard in the winter time and make those contacts and make those stops those guys want to see you i do lots of customer uh, focus groups for dealerships and they 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 know that they can't stop in the yard all the time because they're in Phoenix for the winter. But text and email and keep them in the loop and what's going on and be more of a a consultant to them, I guess, versus then just a sales rep trying to peddle some iron. Become a better salesman to them. Become a consultant for them.
0: Great. Well, well Trent, if they wanted to uh, check out some of your work or or get in touch with you, how would, what's the best way to do that?
1: The best way is to phone the Western Equipment Dealers Association office in Kansas City. And uh, they can get in touch with me, Michael or Corey. Those are the two guys that are in the office that work with Dealer Institute, and uh, that's that, they'll find me somehow.
0: Do Do you have any social media places they can let you post regular to?
1: No, I don't do hardly social media at all. I'm I'm guilty of that terrible bad, but that's just not my thing. I.
0: All right, well, I think that's going to do it for this edition of the Moving Iron Podcast. I'd like to thank Trent for being my guest on the podcast. Remember, if you'd like to continue any of these conversations, you can hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. You can also send me an email at Moving Iron Podcast at movingironpodcast.com. Moving Iron LLC has a website. On the website, you can find information for 2018 Moving Iron Summit in Las Vegas, past and current episodes of the Moving Iron Podcast, and articles from the Moving Iron blog. Throughout the year, there will be guest bloggers writing on various topics from their viewpoint. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by writing a review at your favorite podcasting platform or subscribing there. Or you can use uh, the Amazon click-through on the the Moving Iron LLC website. You have the same experience that you're accustomed to while supporting the podcast. This podcast can be found on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, and SoundCloud. So until next time, let's go move some iron. This is Casey Seymour.